welcome back to the One Goal U.S. Soccer Podcast. As always, we'll start here. George, how are you doing today? I'm doing absolutely amazing. Awesome, man. How is school going for you so far? Not going to lie, it's been a little stale. Maybe I just forgot how to use my brain, but hopefully in the coming weeks, it does get a little bit better. Tomorrow, I have a 5 a.m. class, so I'm not very excited about that. But on the other hand, tomorrow, my Serginho Dest Ajax jersey is coming in the mail. So I'm looking forward to that. So hopefully it's always going to be a great day. Yeah, I can't complain right there at all. But let's start here. Obviously, for the people who are just starting to listen and tune in, George has played in the DA. He does play for Boston University. I think we should start maybe give me your fun little stories that you've had in your experience, maybe some fun little run-ins you've had, and tell me what that's been like. Yeah, definitely. I've been playing for a long time, so I've run into guys who are doing great things now, playing all over the world guys in the MLS. So had some run-ins here and there and a couple stick out more than others. So I guess one that comes to mind, probably my earliest one. And it's with the guy who I actually don't think is playing anymore. Uh, his name's Tyler Shaver and he made the 2017 U17 world cup, but he was the only player not to play a minute in that world cup. Then he played one year at Stanford and is not on the roster anymore. So I guess he's done over there, but during my travel soccer game. So probably around the ages of like nine to 11, I was a striker. I was faster than everyone else. I scored probably two or three goals every game and we got to the state cup quarterfinals and I came up against the center back and I just couldn't get by him. I, I did everything I could every play. I couldn't get by the kid and it got to the point where I was taking out my frustrations on everyone else and I was following other players and I ended up getting a yellow card. And so my coach took me off. and I didn't play the rest of the game and my team somehow ended up winning. We won the state cup, but then a year or two later, this kid gets a national team call up and so making the U17 World Cup. So it kind of validated myself. It, it validated my whole travel soccer career that the only person that could stop me was a national team player. Yeah, I guess that's a pretty good uh, consolation. Worst case scenario, he's literally better than you. What can you do? You know? Yeah, I, it was completely fine. Like I remember leaving that day, the field that day. I'd never experienced anything like it. And I was telling myself, I'm like, am I not good enough? Am I playing at too low of a level? And then as soon as I saw what this kid was doing, I was like, all right, I'm fine. Like, he's just an anomaly. That's a great story. I want to hear this other story you're telling me about Chris Durkin. You know, you played against him, I believe, when you were younger. So tell me about that. Yeah, so I think I have an affinity for finding defensive midfielders. I think defensive midfield is a very underrated position. It's one of the positions where players can be unspectacular, but they get the job done. And I've come across a couple of guys who I see them play at the defensive midfield position. And I say, yes, they weren't necessarily controlling the game, but they have that thing. For example, James Sands, I played against him and his twin brother all throughout my youth career. And I always was like, this kid really didn't do much. He wasn't hitting, you know, shots from 30 yards out. He wasn't necessarily controlling the game, but I just said, He's absolutely solid. So it didn't surprise me when he had his success. Christian Kappas as well. He was a late bloomer in the national team pool. I played against him probably when I was 16 years old. He still hadn't gotten a national team cap yet. And it was before he had won the national championship. And he was the captain of the Texans. And I remember thinking, this kid's probably better than a lot of these other national team guys who everyone's talking about. Then two years later, he gets his first call up. And I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. But... 
My favorite one is Chris Durkin because I remember playing against him when I was 13 years old. And obviously when you're 13, everyone doesn't necessarily have the foot to hit those cross field balls. But this kid was playing a year up, so he was probably 12 years old at the time. And he was hitting full field switches. I remember my jaw was dropping. And I went home that day and I told my family, I'm like, I think I just played against this guy who's going to captain the national team or something. And I looked it up and he had never gotten a national team call. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Then I think a couple months later, he gets his first call, ends up being the captain. And I just, I was like, it makes complete sense. This guy was phenomenal. So if there's any other defensive midfielders who want to get on the national team, let me play against you because you are going to succeed. That's pretty funny. So tell me more about James Sands and Christian Kappas. Like what stood out when you were playing against those guys? I think just the confidence for James Sands. When you're 12 years old, everything's very helter skelter. It's a busy game. There's lots of bounces, but it just seemed like every time he got the ball, he made a clean pass. And so, yes, he wasn't switching it. Like I remember Chris Durkin was, he wasn't taking shots from 30 yards out. It was actually his twin brother who as we left that game, everyone's like, this kid's amazing because he was a left mid. I think he scored two goals. We tied 2-2. He scored two goals. And I remember saying, I actually like the other guy better because there's just something about a calming presence at that age. And that's what he was. And then with Christian Kappas, I remember he was just a leader. We were definitely the better team, but we also ended up tying that game because he just motivated his teammates and that was something that was very uncommon at that time. A lot of times you see someone wear the captain's armband and it's just maybe the coach's favorite or whatnot. But I could truly see on the field, this guy was a natural born leader and I had never heard of him before. I had to look up his name after the game. So seeing all the success he has now completely makes sense to me. It's a really great story. So I want to go back to not go back. I want to talk about something that kind of broke news this week. Uh, the MLS, obviously, they canceled the DA season a couple months ago and they got rid of the entire development academy. And now they have this new program called the MLS is next. So I want to just get your initial thoughts on that. I think it's going to be more or less the same as the academy. When when you really think about it, the majority of the teams are the academy teams. So pretty much is it is going to be the academy. Yes, there's going to be a little different things. Maybe the playoffs look different, the standings, the different divisions. But at, at the end of the day, it's going to be MLS teams playing against the top youth teams. And I think personally, the academy was was the was on the right path it was what was needed for u.s soccer at the time i don't think there was necessarily anything wrong with it if anything u.s soccer could have done more for the academy put some more money into it and even the way it ended it didn't really sit right with me because when they announced how it was ending they pretty much said it was due to COVID-19. It was a financial-related decision. But we've known for a while that these MLS teams have wanted to start their own league. They felt maybe they weren't getting enough competition or whatnot. So the whole ending of the academy really didn't sit right with me. And I do hope that now that is MLS next, that money is going to be put in, that infrastructure is going to be put in. Because at the end of the day, our youth academies need to be better. They need to be more open. The United States is a place where we don't necessarily have an affinity for developing talent because we're always looking at the same markets. For example, I don't know if there's any good soccer players in North Dakota, but there's no teams in North Dakota. So if you're a good soccer player in North Dakota, you really don't have a place to get seen. You just have to maybe hope you get signed by a residential academy 
throw your name out there somehow. But unlike these other countries, whereas you look in England, every mile there's a different team. If you are a good player, you will be found. We don't have that in the United States. So I'm hoping that with MLS, they're going to run their pockets. We've seen the Audi was promoting their youth academies. And for every goal score, they're going to put $1,000 or whatever into the MLS Academy. So stuff like that is very promising. And I just hope that MLS is really going to do everything they can to make this work. And it's not going to be a case where they just let let it go at the end of the day. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, especially this idea of like if you're playing in North Dakota and, you know, maybe there's no way for you to get noticed. One thing I saw was that this idea that no club has exclusive territory rights. So could you maybe explain to the viewers who don't know what that's about, what that really means and kind of what the significance of that is? So for the youth level, so for MLS Next, pretty much that just means that if a player is playing somewhere in a region where they do have an MLS team, the player can go to any academy he wants. Or if a player is playing, let's just say, in Texas, the New England Revolution could say, move from Texas to New England and play for academy and stay residency here. So, but that is different from the homegrown territories, which I think doesn't necessarily make sense. I don't know why they would add that and then have the homegrown territory rule. Whereas if somebody lives in a territory, that territory's team gets their homegrown rights. The most recent example of this was Nathaniel Harriel, who played for Chargers DA in the Orlando area, but never played for Orlando City Academy. But then when Union wanted to sign him because he had moved to play in their academy for multiple years, they had to give something back to Orlando City for the rights of somebody they've never met, somebody who's never been in their academy. And we've seen examples like this in the past. Josh Sargent's rights went to Kansas City because he's from Missouri. So if Josh Sargent was ever going to play an MLS, he needed to play a certain amount of games and a certain amount of training minutes for Sporting Kansas City Academy so he could play for them. And then we also saw Christian Kappas, who's from the Houston area, but even though he went and played for FC Dallas, Houston still had his rights, even though he'd never been their academy. So this, that is the big issue. I not necessarily worried about it's in the impact of this new role on the youth level, because I think we need to fix it at the professional level, the homegrown level, because those homegrown territory rules are not helping anyone. Yeah, definitely. I just wanted to add another name to that. I remember we interviewed Andrew Carlton. He was talking about how his brother, he's trying to figure out, you know, if he wants to go with Atlanta United or doesn't want to go with Atlanta United, he's kind of stuck because of homegrown rules. So I think this is a good first step for MLS. And I think eventually maybe we get to the point where there's no homegrown rules and it's kind of a free for all like it is everywhere else in the world. And I hope that that's eventually the case, but I'm cautiously optimistic. And I think this is a good step. At the same time, I'm a little bit worried about the kind of commercial of the MLS Youth Academy because, like you mentioned, it's very hard to kind of figure out where are these players who are not on the immediate map. And so I worry that with these MLS teams who are, you know, investing money in their own clubs and maybe their own regions, there are a lot of players who could have played for other DA teams that aren't necessarily top-tier DA teams, but they aren't good enough yet for the MLS Academies. Are you worried at all about that in terms of, like, the outreach of these clubs? Definitely. I think someone that comes to mind when I'm thinking about is Jose Gallegos. He's somebody who not a lot of people knew, but he has benefited so much from being a part of a USL system. And San Antonio doesn't have an MLS team. So imagine Jose Gallegos, San Antonio didn't exist in USL. That's somebody who's untapped right now. 
he's probably still playing high school soccer because he was playing high school soccer while simultaneously playing USL, which is incredible. So if that team isn't there, Jose Gallegos is just another high school soccer player, and he's probably going to college like he was supposed to. And then who knows what happens after that. So there just has to be a way where if a player is good enough to be in a system, they will get in the system and it won't be something that they have to necessarily fight for. There has to be an open path. And I think USL is helping a little with that. They are getting into the markets that MLS can hundred percent get into. So hopefully the combination of MLS and USL does help. I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you could change one thing about the current developmental structure of US soccer, what would you change and why? I would take out, every single method of payment. Obviously it's hard for these private clubs, but it needs to be free. That 100% because at the end of the day, not everyone is good enough to make an MLS Academy. So the way I think of it is if a kid is 12, 13 years old and I'm, I'm from Connecticut, so I'll say maybe they're not good enough to make New England Revolution at the time, or maybe New England Revolution is two hours away where the parents say, at 12, 13, my kid doesn't need to play for New England Revolution right now. If they're 12, 13 years old, they're going to have to be paying thousands of dollars if they want to play for a top team. So obviously it's hard because we don't have enough professional teams everywhere that players can play for free. But my biggest problem is the pay-to-play method. And the sooner we can take that out, the sooner we can get as many people possible into quality teams, the better our entire system will be for it. Yeah, no, I definitely like that answer. One thing I also want to add, just touching back to this idea of homegrowns and figuring out how to get the best out of our players in different areas. I remember when I was talking to Bruce Arena uh, a while ago in class, uh, one thing he said that really struck me was if the U.S. was just the size of Vermont, we would be much better off because it's just so hard to figure out where the talent is. And I think one way to do that, of course, is to kind of make it free for everyone and set a baseline to make sure that everyone gets at least a chance to kind of just play soccer and see where that goes. So again, I'm cautiously optimistic and I really like your answer. And I really hope if U.S. soccer is listening, you know, maybe they give us a call and we can help them out with their, with our vision. So that's one thing definitely to add. And just in terms of other newsworthy things, I think we should touch on. They announced today that the qualifying octagon or do we agree on octagon is the way to call it? The Ocho? I, I, I like the Ocho. Even if they call the Octagon, when it comes to the show, we'll call it the Ocho. Okay, so we're going to go with the Ocho. Uh, there's been some changes with that, so I think we should touch on that real quick. Um, most notably, the qualifying schedule has been pushed back a little bit. They'll now be contested uh, in March and June of 2021, and then the six group winners will then play off for the three remaining spots in the Octagonal. So the games will take place in June of 2021, just before the Gold Cup start in uh, July. So that's a little bit of a difference. And I think it also kind of helps us. Last time we talked about this was this idea of patience. And I think this further adds to that and gives us more time for our players to develop. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I think that's pretty just a quick wrap up. I think the big thing whenever we talk about World Cup qualifying years, we say time. I think if they the further they push back World Cup qualifying, the better the U.S. is going to do. Because... A lot of what we talk about on this podcast is development and how guys are going to develop. The more game time all our young guys get, the better they'll be on the national team stage. So honestly, if they want to push it back until the end of 2021 after this season, I'm completely fine with that because that means Chris Richards is going to get hopefully a full professional season. Anthony Robinson is going to get a full season in the first division. Maybe Sergio Dest is playing you know, for a top Champions League club, who knows? So the further World Cup qualifying gets pushed back, the better shape the USA is going to be in. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I want to add on what you said there about Chris Richards. I want to play a game with you right now. It's called a little over and under. We want to push it back as far as we can so that our players can break into the full first team. So there's a couple names I have, and I want to give you their minute totals from last year, and then we can play a little bit of an over under. But we'll go. So we'll start with Gio Reyna. All right. So last year, he played in the DFB Pokal. He had one game, 24 minutes. In the Champions League, he had two games, 41 minutes. And then in total, he had 15 games played, 441 minutes. So you think we have over or under for Giorena this year? 100% over. He looks like a key member of the squad in preseason. Even some of the guys they brought in, like Hanie from Real Madrid, who maybe get into the team over him. He is going to get opportunities. Marco Royce does have an injury history. I don't want to wish injury on anyone, but there's a, there's a solid chance he does go down. So Giro Reyna will get minutes. So I'm definitely going to put over for him. Yeah, just to add to that, Marco Royce is back and he did play in their most recent game. So like you said, he's probably a good bet to get injured. We don't want to wish that upon him. So again, we're not saying that, but just to watch on that, there's a lot of bodies in there, but like you said, he is a key player and they would not have introduced him to the first team last year at such a young age if he was not an important piece. So I'm going to agree and I'll go over on that one. The next one I want to go with is Anthony Robinson. And the first thing I'll say as a caveat is there's going to be less games in the Premier League. So he's not going to play the same amount of games, but where would you put his minute, minute total at? compared to last year. I can get you the numbers real quick on that. He had uh, 3,356 minutes played in 38 games. So are you going to say over or under on that one? I'm going to say under. And the reason being is obviously it's less games and he's going to have competition. He didn't have competition at Wigan. He was a every game starter. Even when he had to step out with his heart condition, the second he was fit, he started games again. So Fulham does have an incumbent left back in Joe Bryan. So unless Joe Bryan messes up, which is likely with a team like Fulham, Anthony Robinson won't be getting consistent minutes. So it will definitely be under. And I'm kind of scared to predict the range of minutes because it does depend on someone ahead of him and how they do. So I don't I'm not going to see how many minutes I think, but I'm just hoping that he does get his chance early on and can stick with it. Next person I want to bring up, and this is somebody who's been heavily involved in transfer rumors. It looks like they're finally going to wrap up their move to Boa Vista in the Portuguese first league is Reggie Cannon. And so just for the reference, last year he had 2,389 minutes in 29 games for FC Dallas. Where do you think he's going to be this year? I'm hoping he'll be around that because when you go to a team like Boa Vista, the Portuguese league is very top-heavy. You have teams like Benfica, Porto, Sporting Lisbon, who are all pretty quality and do okay in Europe. And the bottom half mid-table league is not great. And that's the type of team Reggie Kane's going to be playing for. So I think unless he puts up similar numbers to those in Portugal, he's not going to get that move that I think he wants and we all want whether that to be England, a France, and Italy, whatever. So if Reggie Cannon wants to be out of Boa Vista in a year or two, he needs to put up those same numbers, and I'm not going to put it past him to do that. For sure. And just to add to that, in terms of the people that are ahead of him, the starting right back last year for Boa Vista left on a free transfer to Porto. So definitely the opportunity is there for him. Like you mentioned, in terms of where he's in one year or two years, something to keep an eye on, and I'm, again, stopping short of confirming this, but Lille is also the owner of Boa Vista. So there's a direct path if he were to go from Boa Vista to Lille. I'm not sure if that will happen. I cannot say whether it will or whether it won't, but the first step of making sure something like that does happen is to get playing time so i agree i'm going to say around the same number for reggie cannon 
maybe a little bit over, maybe a little bit under, depending on if he catches injury or something like that. But he's someone I definitely want to keep an eye on going into the season. Another player I want to bring up is someone who scored today in the under-21 uh, game for Aston Villa is India Vasilev. And last year, you appeared only in four games and played in 47 minutes for Aston Villa. You know, they were in the middle of a relegation fight, so the opportunity wasn't necessarily there for him. But could we expect more from him this year? I would say maybe slightly more. Aston Villa U23s did not have a good game today. They got absolutely pummeled by a professional team, Sunderland, which featured Lyndon Gucci gone assist. It was 8-1. So the fact that he stepped up to take a penalty kick for them means that he's probably a key member of the U23s, which probably puts him in a good position to get Premier League minutes. But the reason why he did get in those games was because Aston Villa had a laundry list of injuries. And after they stayed in the Premier League by the skin of their teeth, they'll probably hesitant to give players like him. They have another young player, Jacob Ramsey. They'll probably be hesitant to give those players tons of minutes. So 41 minutes isn't a lot to get more than. So I think he will do it. But he will need to prove to Aston Villa that in the heat of a Premier League survival race, he can play minutes when people aren't injured. Yeah, no, I, I actually kind of agree with you. You know, his situation kind of reminds me of Uli Lainez, who we thought, oh, he's ready. He's going to break into the first team. But you look at the rosters of both teams, and obviously Wolfsburg is not in the midst of a relegation fight. But at the same time, you know, they have a strong squad. And in regards to Vaslev, again, they have a pretty strong squad as well. They've been linked to a slew of strikers this offseason, and they've been trying to bolster their squad. And like you said, he's an important player for the youth team. So he's one of those guys who's kind of floating in between and will eventually get his chance. But I'm just not sure if he's going to have the full chance this year. I think it might take Astaville going back into the championship for them to say, you know, we've already secured this move back up to the Premier League. Now we can play India Vasilev. So that would be something I'm looking at maybe two years down the line. But again, it's kind of hard to project kind of where he's going to end up. Another guy I want to bring up who I think is really interesting and is really in need of a big year is Josh Sargent. And last year, he had about 1,500 minutes. That includes the DFB Pokal. Bundesliga playoffs and the Bundesliga. So are we thinking over or under for him? And I'll also add four goals and four assists. We're going to give him two uh, assists, including the DFB Pokal and Bundesliga playoffs. So four goals, six assists. Are we going over or under for him? I'm going over for Josh Sargent, and I'm going comfortably over. Last season, he got all those minutes while the coaching staff wasn't necessarily talking too highly about him. And now the coaching staff is talking highly about him. They're saying Josh Sargent is a guy we can't imagine not in the starting lineup. So I'm very excited for Josh Sargent. And one thing we've preached about him is patience. We've obviously known him for such a long time. So we want the best form. We want him to be that guy right away. But fact of the matter is Josh Sargent is 20 years old. He's about to be a 20 year old American striker leading the line for a Bundesliga team. That is absolutely incredible. So I think Josh Sargent's getting more than four goals. Maybe he gets more than four assists and he's definitely breaking the 2000 minute mark. I think the minimum. Yeah, no, actually, I definitely agree with you. All the indications we've seen so far from Werder Bremen is that he's going to be a starter right away. And as long as he scores, the minutes will be there because he'll be playing every game. And then hopefully the results come as well. So there's no reason not to be optimistic with Josh. We've touched on that in previous podcasts. I'm not sure what else needs to be said about him. But another guy I'm really curious about is Chris Richards. Now, last year, he got his debut with Bayern Munich, six minutes. And today we heard the news 
that uh, Kangui Kawasi uh, is going to be out for six weeks with an injury. And obviously, he can play as center defensive mid and a center back. And then Javi Martinez looks to be on his way out as well. So what's the outlook for Chris Richards? Is it going to be six minutes or more with Bayern Munich? Or do we think he leaves somewhere else and then goes up by a lot? I don't think Chris Richards is in line to get first team minutes of Bayern Munich. I think they have enough pieces where, if need be, they will shift guys around. I personally feel like they'd rather put Joshua Kimmich at center back like they've done in the past if they need a center back, if it gets that bad. So I do feel Chris Richards' best bet is to get a low move. I think he is too good for the third division of the Bundesliga. So I do want a Chris Richards low move because I do not see a path to first team minutes, even if it's six minutes at this point. Yeah, and just to add to that, uh, there's some speculation right now that there are a lot of Bundesliga clubs interested. And when we were talking about last week in terms of like what's the best bet for him to get playing time, I, I just want to be at the Bundesliga level. And I think if there's an option for him to get playing time at a Bundesliga level, I think he'll definitely surpass, obviously, the six-minute mark. And I think he could be someone who maybe doesn't push for 2,000 minutes like a Josh Sargent, but he probably could get to the 1,000-minute level, maybe 1,500 minutes, and become a real you know, significant player for a Bundesliga team and then move back to Bayern. And, you know, we'll see what happens. So I don't know if any other thoughts on that. Definitely. I think it will be hard at this point late in the transfer season if he does go somewhere at a top level because it'll be hard for him to break in also because he's just 20 years old. So maybe if there's a team that plays with a three-man back line, it's easier to sneak into one of those. So if Chris Richards can find a team like that at a top league where he can sneak into the back line after a couple of games, I think that'd be good for his development. All right, that's a really good point. And just to wrap up, one more guy I think we should touch on is Tyler Adams. Um, he had this 4-3-3 feature that I would definitely recommend people checking out if they want to see that. Also, I'll plug the Gio Reyna feature. That's a great one to watch as well. Um, but last year, including the Champions League and the Bundesliga, he had about 1,033 minutes. So do you think he'll be over under that this year? I think he'll be he'll be over that this year. Will be interesting to see where his position lies, where he's best going to be utilized. But I think he's one of those guys who is going to see himself on the field because of his versatility, whether it's at a right wing back position, a center midfield position. He's clearly shown this year that he's a very tenacious player. So that bodes well for him. Yeah, I agree. I'm a little bit worried about Kevin Campbell and Conrad Lamer and those guys taking his midfield spots. So I think, you know, he'll definitely get a little more minutes than he had last year because he was injured and staying healthy would definitely be a big part of Tyler Adams' development. But I'm not necessarily worried per se, but I, I want him to be playing in the midfield. And, you know, it'd be great if he's on the field, he's on the field for a great team and he's at the right back position. But I really want him to play in the midfield. You think he's going to get maybe a thousand minutes in just the midfield alone? Or do you think it's going to be like 1,500? minutes including the right back and the midfield it would need to be a, a spread out job I don't think right now he's at a place where he can make the position his own and once again that's not a bad thing he's only 21 years old so that's not necessarily a knock on him so wherever he can get his minutes he needs to get them if he can snag minutes at right wing back I know Tyler would 100% take that. I, I agree, but I reluctantly agree. You know what I mean? In terms of like other youth players, you know, there's Nick Tadagui and there's Uli Lainez and a couple dual nationals like Eunice Munsa, who's played a little bit for the Valencia first team. Alex Mighton signed the first team deal with Nottingham Forest. Are there any youth players you're looking at to even a Richie Ledesma that could kind of break in and maybe get to, say, the 500-minute mark? Honestly, I don't think so. 
it's just one of those things where teams have their guys, teams have players who they sign. Signings are still going to be made. So I think for those guys you name, plus maybe someone like Chris Gloucester, Alex Mendez, it's just about making a debut. Definitely. Is there is there any guy you think that could maybe make their debut before January? I think it would probably be Richie Ledesma. Maybe if there's a Champions League or European game in midweek and they throw him in that weekend before, maybe Richie Ledesma. So I'll go with him. It looks like Chris Glosser does have a little more competition. They might be a left back. So I think I'll go with Richie Ledesma. It's a good call. Is there anything else we should wrap up with? I guess I can tell some fun stories. I've had some weird interaction with U.S. soccer players. Um, I haven't had any on the field. I'm not as cool as George. I'm not as an accomplished soccer player, but I was decent in my own right. But I guess my favorite story I can tell you is I was playing pickup basketball at my local gym and there was a guy wearing U.S. soccer shorts. And usually I'm pretty quick to recognize like, oh, do I know this guy? And I couldn't figure I couldn't figure out who it was. And this guy was like a complete specimen. He was just we were playing one on one or actually I think it was two on two with my friend. And I remember taking a jump shot and this guy just slammed it out of nowhere, two hand blocked it into the uh, seats kind of far away. And so I was like, who is this guy? And I said, you know, I have to ask you, you're wearing these U.S. soccer shorts. Who are you? And he said, oh, my name is Dave Romney. And I don't know if people, the listeners know much about Dave Romney, but he was a very promising uh, upstart center back. He played with the LA Galaxy and now he's with Nashville SC. So that's kind of my cool little run in with Dave Romney, who I'm actually friends with on Facebook. So Dave, you know, mutual friends there. And another weird one, I was at Starbucks one time and I remember it was in Fashion Island in Newport Beach and it was this guy wearing LA Galaxy uh, gear. And I was like, oh, is that, is that Jeff Lorenowitz? You know, there's not many redhead soccer players. And I, I was 99% sure it was him. And then I remember I was about to get my order and then it was like vanilla latte for Jeff. And I was like, all right, cool. That's Jeff Lorenowitz. So that was just my two cool little stories there. Um, I guess other big news we can talk about is Christian Pulisic getting the 10 for Chelsea. That's pretty much official now. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I'm pretty excited about that. And I'm looking forward to a big year with him. We didn't really include him in our minutes wrap up because as long as he's healthy, he's the starter there. So I think he's going to get plenty of minutes and plenty of goals. But do you have any thoughts on him getting the 10? He just keeps inching his way up to GOAT status. We talked about it in the podcast last week. Donovan Dempsey, who's a U.S. soccer GOAT. And with every waking man, Christian Pulisic is just inching closer and closer and making that title his. Having a player get the number 10 jersey for a top European team like Chelsea, even though I'm not a Chelsea fan by any means, it's absolutely incredible. I want to say this off the top as well. We saw a quote from Greg Berhalter earlier this week saying, Pulisic, if he keeps playing, keeps staying healthy, he could be playing for a Real Madrid, a Bayern Munich, a Barcelona. And I saw some stuff on Twitter that was saying like, oh, how could a national team coach say this? You know, he's playing for Chelsea. He's doing great. But I think it's really important to recognize what Greg Berhalter is doing here. You know, he's saying that, yes, he's doing very well. And we love that he's doing very well. But there's much more ahead for, you know, a Christian Pulisic. The same thing can be said for a Gio Reyna, who's, you know, playing well for one of the best teams in Germany. But we got to keep pushing, man. And I'm not saying that's just in MLS, that's just in Europe. But across the board, let's keep pushing U.S. soccer. Weston McKinney's at Juventus. Like, the sky is the limit for us, man. I'm just excited. Yeah, I think... Yes, maybe Chelsea is a great team, so 
maybe people do think Chelsea's in the same tier as those teams, but I wouldn't look too much into the quote. Like you said, there's bigger fish to fry. It's just amazing that we can even talk about American players in these conversations. So that's what we have to worry about. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any thoughts just quickly on the U.S. Soccer uh, Hall of Fame discussions? Obviously, Hope Solo didn't make it, and I think Steve, Steve Chirinlo didn't make it as well. So do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? I think I looked into it today and the whole voting system just doesn't make sense. The fact that Carlos Bocanegra only made it by 2%, it just seems very flawed. I don't know who these people are voting. I don't know what the criteria is. I mean, yes, Hope Solo has done some not so great things. She's a very divisive character, but she's a four-time women's goalkeeper of the year. That's not U.S. women's goalkeeper of the year. That is world goalkeeper of the year. If that was a man who did that, 100% I would think they're getting voted. I'm not saying this is a case of because she's a female, she's not getting it. But even someone like Shannon Box, I know, who's an incredible player, over 100 caps for a women's national team, she hasn't gotten it. Terundolo, like we've said. Jaime Moreno, who has 100-plus goals and 100-plus assists, I think only one of three players in MLS to do that. Some of these people who I think should be no-brainers aren't getting it after all these years. So I definitely do think the voting needs to be reconsidered. And the reason what gets me a little skeptical about it too is that everyone on U.S. soccer, involved with U.S. soccer in terms of like the Twitter community on all that, they're all saying, I don't know how these people aren't getting in. So if these names are saying, I don't know how these people get in, it makes me think, who is voting? Like who is voting that Steve Chirungo cannot get 60% or 62%, whatever it is. So it's just very questionable for me. Yeah. And I'll just say off the top, I think Hope Solo is definitely the best women's U.S. soccer goalie of all time. And she's, I'm not going to compare her to Tim Howard, but in terms of just like the, the award that she has and the success she's had for the U.S. national team, off field things aside, like how is she not? in the Hall of Fame. Like, there's not a more definitive player to me. I remember watching those World Cups. I was like, dude, I want to be like Hope Solo. She was a monster. She was a brick wall. And so I think just like... That's amazing. And that, I don't know how we don't recognize it. I'm definitely questioning the voting process as well, because I look at maybe it's the head of U.S. soccer and those kind of people involved, like a Carlos Cordero and those kind of people. And Hope Solo ran against those people to try to run for president. So I'm not saying there's any collusion or inside stuff going on there. But like you said, it's a little bit suspicious. And that'll wrap up this edition of the One Goal U.S. Soccer podcast. Of course, always rate, review and subscribe. And I also would like to plug our earlier story about Reggie Cannon's move to Boa Vista. So check that out on onegoal.us. And also I'd like to plug an interview we did earlier this year with James Sands. Again, please rate, review, and subscribe, and we will be back this time next week. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening.